Father, you are so kind and so merciful and so gracious towards us. You are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions that we would be able to comfort those with the comfort with which we've been comforted. You're a gracious, merciful God who sent your only son to die for us. And Father, I thank you that you use your word to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us, to make us like your son. And I pray you prepare our hearts that we'd be ready to receive it as you desire. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. For those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we recognize that we have been delivered from the, the slavery to sin that we were once enslaved to. We were, we were slaves to sin. And that slavery to sin resulted in death. And now we are enslaved to a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our new master is a gracious, kind master who gave himself for us. Now, Scripture reveals that we are bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we understand that. But the Lord Jesus revealed to his disciples that the slave-master relationship goes much deeper, and that relationship that we have with him, we are also his friends. John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Yes, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are also friends. We sing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And as we see, we are not simply slaves where we don't know what God is doing, but God has revealed in his word what he is doing. You see, sometimes we can go into situations where we enter into trials and difficulties and distress, and we wonder, what are you doing, Lord God? What's going on in this? And yet God's word reveals exactly what he is doing in those situations. And we need to renew our hearts and minds in those situations that we would not lose Faith's sweet consolation offered to us in his holy word. Today we're going to continue our look in how we as sojourners on this earth should respond to suffering for doing what is right. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 to 17. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. Now, again, Peter is writing to aliens and sojourners on this earth, those who are true believers, whom whom this earth is not their own. This is not our home. We are temporary residents here. And he was reminding them how we are to walk in the midst of our temporary residency. And he has reminded them so of the, the great, wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have a tremendous eternal inheritance awaiting for us, a salvation ready to be revealed. And yet we do suffer in trials these days, but God is refining us. He is purifying us. And therefore, in the context of what we see as being aliens and sojourners, there's also trials that come from those who are not saved. Uh, These believers in 1 Peter were suffering, and they were about to suffer a fiery ordeal that would come upon them for their testing. And they might be tempted to think some strange thing were happening to them. And Peter writes that they would fix their hope alone in Christ, live a holy life in the context of godly fear, love the body of Christ, and yearn for his word. And we see what God is doing, building us up. And then in the middle of chapter 2, we had the first application, really, that we are to keep our behavior excellent among Gentiles. We're, We're to stay far away from fleshly lusts. So that in the very thing that those who persecute us uh, do would cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation when they see uh, their sinfulness and turn, hopefully, to Jesus Christ. Within that, we saw that we are to submit to governing authorities, honor all men. We're in the sphere of the slave-master work relationship. We are to uh, submit to those masters with a conscience towards God, doing what is right. And even if we should suffer, uh, we recognize that God's grace and his, his favor is upon us. 
We saw that we were called for this purpose. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. To follow in the tracing pattern of Christ when we suffer. To not sin, to not revile and return, to not utter threats, but to continue to entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. And we saw in chapter 2 what happened with Christ, our perfect example, as he brought about our salvation through the, the, the sinfulness that people brought upon him, all according to God's plan that he would die for us, he would bear our sins in his body, and he would die and be risen from the dead. And in chapter 3 we saw for the wives and husbands how we are to relate in the context of ordered relationships in the same way entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously, allowing his character to be manifest in us, uh, living according to knowledge. And then we had a summary statement that everything should be a, a sympathetic or should be like-minded, sympathetic, harmonious, brotherly, all these things, kind, tender-hearted, all these things. And we should not be returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For we have been called to inherit a blessing. And within that, we moved into this portion where we're looking at today, where we're going to see how we are, or continue to see how we are to respond when we do what is right and suffer for it. I want to back up a little bit to verse 13, and we'll read up to... Uh, verse 18. I planned to teach through 22, and there's no way that was going to happen, so I changed it, and we're going to go through 17 today. Verse 13 of chapter 3, excuse me. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And that's where we're going to end today, but it, it continues here, and, and it gives an example from here to the rest of the chapter concerning what Jesus did, and I'll read that first verse. Uh, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. So how are we to respond in the context of suffering for doing what is right? When you obey the Lord Jesus, you are trusting him. You are doing what is right and, and you are slandered or you are evil is said about you. You're persecuted, whatever it might be. You're treated harshly, whatever it could be. How are we to respond? How are we to respond? Well, you remember we saw last week that even if we should suffer, we need to recognize that we are blessed. Again, verse 13 in review. And who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Remember we saw the implication here was in a general sense when you do what is right in the context of the unbelieving world, uh, i.e. Uh, governments and, and slave master, work relationships, within the marriage relationship with a non-Christian, when you do what is right, uh, by and large you're not going to be harmed for doing what is right. But yet, if you should suffer, we saw in verse 14, but even if you should suffer, the Greek construction was that it is a remote possibility, but it is possible. And we do know we as believers are going to suffer. Indeed, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But yet, that's not all the time. Peter's making it clear, hey, it doesn't last forever. It's not all the time. But yes, even if you should suffer, even if you should he says, you are blessed. Now, remember the suffering spoken of here in context is for doing what is right. For righteousness' sake. It is our good behavior in Christ, as we've seen. And when we do what is right, sometimes we may suffer for it. And we saw what that suffering looks in the context of First Peter. It's those who might slander. We saw the word slander your good, for, you, for your good behavior. It's being maligned or insulted. You know, Jesus shared the reality of what this looks like when we're persecuted. Turn again to, or turn to Matthew chapter 5 for a second. I want to review verses 10 through 12. 
And it's very interesting on a side note, when you look at Matthew 5, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we have these beatitudes, those, those statements that tell us what the blessed person looks like. The one who has a right relationship with the living God. What does that look like? And towards the end, he goes into this issue of persecution. And right after that, you'll notice right away, he talks about let your light shine. It's very interesting that our light, as we'll see today, shines the brightest in a sense when we are trusting Christ in the midst of being persecuted and having things said about us that are not right. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those, plural, who have been persecuted for what? The sake of righteousness. You don't want to suffer for your sin, for messing up, but for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, these are believers. It's an evidence they know the Lord. Blessed are you when men cast, what, insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. This is the persecution that Jesus is primarily talking about. Now, certainly there's physical persecution. That can certainly be there. And we see that even with the apostle Paul, Saul, before he came to Christ, persecuting the church. But he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And right after that, he talks about letting your light shine. The reality is, as we'll see today, as we go through persecution, when we are trusting the Lord and obeying him, God uses that as a visible opportunity to bring about the possibility for the gospel, for the gospel. Persecution, all kinds of insults, evil said falsely. And you know what? Our scripture back in our passage says, when you're persecuted in this way, when this happens, if it should happen to you, you are blessed. You are blessed. The reality is, if you are suffering for doing what is right, you are blessed. There is a blessing upon your life. God is with you. You're walking with the Lord. If, you're, if, you, don't, if, if you don't do what is right, you're obviously not walking with the Lord. But there is a blessing. His eye is upon you. His ear is attentive to your prayer. Look down in 1 Peter chapter 4. We see this kind of a summary statement concerning persecution. And it, it comes on the heels of not being surprised at the fiery deal which would come upon them for the testing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Now again, persecution is not all the time, it seems, but if God should will it, it does come upon us. 1 Peter 4, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice in exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, what does it say? You are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Hey, you're walking with the Lord. You are blessed. You are blessed. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. That doesn't sound like anything bad. Yeah, it is bad. Don't suffer for that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in, in that name, let him glorify God. We're going to see later on that God desires people to be shamed for their sin that they might be saved. But believers do not need to be ashamed if they are suffering for doing what is right. And we're commanded not to in that portion. Keep on rejoicing. Don't be ashamed when someone casts false insults. Say, don't be ashamed at that. But glorify God because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Be encouraged. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. And then last week we finished up with this end of verse 14 back in chapter 3 and the beginning of verse 15. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But... Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now remember here that uh, the context of this end of verse 14 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. We won't read it this time. It's a quote from the end of chapter 8. And in that, the context is the unfaithful king Ahaz of Judah has allied himself with Syria so that he would not be invaded by Israel, or, or so, so of Judah wouldn't be invaded by Israel. And uh, Isaiah and the remnant were being falsely accused of a conspiracy because they opposed this sinful alliance rather than trusting the Lord. And so the Lord God is telling Isaiah and those who are faithful, don't fear their intimidation. 
Do not be troubled. They're, they're, they're slandering you, Isaiah. Don't fear that. But instead, you should fear, in Isaiah chapter 8, fear the Lord God. He should be your fear. He should be your dread. And, and Peter quotes that here for us. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Don't let what people say in the context of suffering and what they are doing cause you to be lorded over by those thoughts, but let Christ lord over your heart. You're not to be fear, fearing or being shaken up, shake, being sh- shook up. We're not to do that. You see, the fear of man brings a snare. Whenever we fear man rather than God, we are ensnared, we are hooked. And you can feel that tight exertion of sin in our lives when you begin to fear what people might think. It is a trap. It is a snare. The minute you are fearing what someone else... Now, it's not wrong to, to want to be holy and righteous and do the right thing. But to fear what people think is, is, is not biblical. We need to fear God. Fear God and then our behavior will be right around those around us. We are not to fear be shaken up or troubled, but we are to fear the Lord And remember, even behind these sufferings that they were going through, there was a spiritual reality that Peter reveals in chapter chapter 5. That Satan is behind all this. He's behind those who are doing this. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 10 of 1 Peter. Actually, let's go back a tiny bit. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. You see, when we go through troubled times, we can actually be quite prideful. We can think we can get through it. When we're anxious, it's actually pride. We, we, we don't trust the Lord. We, we don't rely on him. We need to humble ourselves and cast our cares, as we see here, and casting all your anxiety upon him for he cares for you. He's a great God. He loves you. He cares for you. And notice what he says. Um, He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in, and you'll see it's in italics, it's really firm in the faith, firm in in your faith in Jesus Christ, firm in the truth that you have from Scripture that you believe, knowing that the same experiences of what? Suffering, of suffering, are being accomplished by your brethren around the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are not to fear their intimidation. We are not to fear the circumstances. We're not to be troubled, be shaken up when we suffer for doing what is right. We are to remember we are blessed. And instead, notice verse 15. We are to make Christ the Lord of our hearts instead of our circumstances. And do not fear their intimidation. End of 14. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the contrast here. And notice he continues here. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Now this verse, chapter fifteen or chapter 3, verse 15, is almost universally used to speak for apologetics. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart, being ready to make a defense or an apologia. It is used almost universally in every... I probably bet if you went to any apologetics website, you could probably find this verse somewhere. It's, it's one of the, the core verses that is used. But as we studied First Peter, we see the context is actually our response to suffering. As we see even here, uh, down in verse uh, 16, you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ. It's all connected. If you suffer, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation or be troubled. But, in contrast to that, set apart Christ as Lord of your hearts. As we see in Isaiah 8, he should be your dread, he should be your fear, not what is happening to you. You see, we need to put Christ as Lord. Christ is way above all these things. He's sovereign. Nothing passes by him. He loves us. He gave himself for us. He is in control. We act in our hearts and minds at times when we are troubled as though Christ is not 
in control. And our circumstances become control and they control our hearts. This term sanctify here in verse 15, the term sanctify uh, speaks of setting apart. It's a derivative of the word holy. To make holy, set apart Christ as the Lord in your heart. Don't let the troubling situation be the Lord in your heart. And guess how you can know? What are you thinking about all the time? Are you thinking about the situations and the people and stuff? Or are you setting Christ apart and allowing his word to direct your heart? That's how you can know what's controlling your heart. If you're continually day in and day out thinking about this and this is what goes on in your heart and mind all the time, then that's what's lording of your heart. Now, it doesn't mean we ignore reality, but we trust the Lord, set him as Lord of our heart, and we see, Lord, you are in control of these circumstances. Pour your heart out before the Lord, we see in Scripture. You know, share those things, but it's in the context of you are in control. You are in control. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Jesus is in control. He's working everything together for good. Satan will soon be crushed at your feet. We are actually blessed when we suffer. We start to renew our minds with those truths rather than the poor me's, right? Or the bad they's, whatever it might be. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Nothing else is to be lording over our thinking. Nothing else. Christ is to be Lord over our thinking. Do you see how important this is? When you're being slandered, when you're being persecuted, when you're being insulted, when you're suffering for doing what is right, when you're suffering for Christ, don't fear, don't be troubled, don't let the circumstances lord over your thoughts, but instead, but rather, the scripture says, but, you could translate it, but rather, set aside Christ as Lord of your hearts. Now this is a command. This is not God's suggestion to the church. It is a command for us. We are commanded by God to do this. And whenever you disobey God's word, we suffer. Yes, and we do disobey God's word, and we do fail. We need to confess, as we'll see. But you will reap what you sow. If you do not set him aside as Lord of your heart, you will reap down the line. God is not mocked. If, if everything else is Lord of your heart, you're going down a road that's going to produce uh, death, in a sense. You reap what you sow. If you sow to the Spirit, life, sow to the flesh, death. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now I want to show you here that this amazing statement doesn't stop. There are actually two connected phrases that structure this passage here with an explanation afterwards. So we have sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the command. Continually, habitually do so. But there's also another phrase connected, the beginning of verse 15. Always being ready to make a defense. Set them apart. Always being ready to make a defense. And there's another one, if you look in verse 16, they've translated it, and keep a good conscience. It literally is a participle. It's and keeping or holding on to a good conscience. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready Sanctify, to make a defense. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always keeping or holding on to a good conscience. And there's a purpose why. And then an explanation. So as long as we understand that, we see there are these sub-things that we need to do as we set apart Lord Christ as Lord our hearts. Don't be doing these other things without setting Christ apart as Lord. It's, it's connected. That's the main element. Christ, you, Lord God, you are in control. I trust you. Your word is true. I believe what you've said. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. And, I, and I'm sharing, pouring my heart out to you. But you're in control. You're good. And you do good. And you will work things together for good. And you're faithful and you're kind and you're protecting us. And soon you will crush Satan at our feet. You have to renew your mind. Make Christ Lord in your hearts. And believe me, it's, 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 it's a battle to do so. Because Satan wants us to sin and think about stuff and people rather than about Christ. And how he is sovereign over that stuff and people. So then, there are two things that we are to do. Now, the first one is that we are to continually have a ready defense. A ready defense to why, as we will see, that we have hope. Knowing that our good behavior will give opportunities to share Christ. Again, let me read this in context. In the end of verse 14, And do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but rather, instead of that, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready 
to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is a tremendously amazing statement that God would place this in at this point, and it really helps us understand the context of why God allows suffering, why he does. You see, we need to sanctify Christ as Lord, understanding what he's doing. Now, again, I shared most people use this verse to speak of apologetics these days, and I, I just don't agree that that's what this is talking about. I believe it's talking about opportunities to share the gospel, and we'll see that in a minute. We'll see that in a minute. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Notice they're asking you, you're not telling them. And you're ready, you're ready, but you're not spilling it out everywhere. But you're ready, you're ready. This term translated ready means ready, being prepared. You know, Jesus used this... uh, when he spoke uh, concerning his second coming in Luke and in Matthew 24, that we are to be ready. We're to be ready. And well, that was for the the tribulation disciples at that point, but uh, they're to be ready. They're to be prepared for his coming. When you think of being ready, you think of being prepared, right? You know, if you're prepared for a trip, your bag is packed, your stuff's ready. If you're not prepared, you're scrambling everything together, right? When, When you have to leave. Being ready. Always being ready. The term always means always. Always ready. You could say this in advance. It's not when it happens that you should be getting ready. We need to be ready in advance. Knowing what God is doing through these circumstances, I need to be ready. And it's 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 a command in light of that sanctifying Christ. Now, what is it that we're to be ready to? To give a defense, as we will see, or an account for the hope that is in you. We'll see a little later that this term defense, apologia, speaks of a, a legal defense. It speaks of giving a, a legal defense or, 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 or an account. And I think it really, applies, it really brings forth the, the reality that we need to know the facts of why we have hope. We need to be able to give the truth, not our feelings, not our emotions, but the truth, a defense. When anyone gives a legal defense, They usually don't just give their emotional defense. They share the facts, the truth. And we'll see that. And notice we're to give a defense for. We'll look at that word defense a little more in a minute. But we're to give a defense to everyone who asks why we have hope. Notice the issue is hope. And the issue is someone that might ask you in the midst of seeing your good deeds and slandering you. And somehow God's work in your life in those circumstances is going to prompt people to say something is different about this person and ask why you have hope. Very interesting statement. Why do you have hope? Why do you have hope? Have you ever been asked that? Have you ever been asked why you have hope? Let's talk a little bit about hope. Now, I think we understand hope in general, and it speaks of an expectation, something that we are hoping for. Now, we need to recognize biblical hope does not come in the context of things that we can see. Turn to Romans chapter 8, and I want to explain this. Biblical hope is not in what we see, but in what we do not see. Romans chapter 8, the context here is the redemption of our bodies, that culmination of our salvation, that wonderful truth that God is going to take care of this body of death, who will set me free from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruit of the spirits, even we within ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Hey, I hate this flesh. I want this sinful flesh to be, to be done with, right? Now, right now, we, are, we can consider ourselves dead to it, but yet it's still there, right? Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to be redeemed. Our bodies will be glorified. No more sin. Salvation will be consummated 
He says, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why, does one, for why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The scripture reveals our primary hope is in God. Psalm 43, 5 and 11, hope in God. Acts 24, verse 15, we'll see it. Paul made it clear he was on trial for hope in God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 5, uh, we see one of the qualifications for widows being aided by the church is that they hoped in God. They hoped in God. They fixed their hope on God. The holy women of old, 1 Peter 3, 5, hoped in God. God. The Apostle Paul told Timothy very clearly in 1 Timothy 4.10 that they labor and strive because they have fixed our, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. And then we also see in Scripture not only is our hope in God, but it is in God the Son, Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, Jesus our Savior is the blessed hope. The Thessalonians believed and had a steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus is our hope. Romans 15.12, in him the Gentiles shall hope, speaking of Christ. 1 Peter 1.21, because of what Christ has done, our faith and hope is in God. Now, folks, our hope is in God and in Christ, obviously, but there are also, we also hope for what he has promised, as we just read in Romans chapter 8. We hope for what he has promised in Christ, the hope of eternal life, the consummation of our salvation. It is right and good to hope for that. The Apostle Paul shares it this way, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Or three, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Eternal life. Colossians 1.27 Christ in us. The, this, what Paul was preaching, the, the, the glorious riches of the mystery Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have his spirit, which is the pledge and and the down payment for our glorification. Titus chapter 3, we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 1.18, that we might know the hope of our calling. There is one hope and one hope of our calling, right? We see that one in Ephesians 4. What about 1 Peter uh, 1.13? We are to uh, fix our hope in, 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 in Christ's coming completely, in the grace to be revealed to us when he comes. We were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1.3. We have a hope. We have hope. If you are a true believer, we have hope. We have hope. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is sharing the way they used to be and the way they are in a contrast. Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of another passage I didn't read, but uh, we have hope in 1 John. Everyone who has this hope that when we see him, we'll be like him, fix, purifies himself. 1 John 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, that you were at that time separate from Christ. Before you came to Christ, you were separate. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise. And then what does he say? Having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you've truly been saved, you have hope. And if you've never had any hope beyond this life, I would question whether you truly ever have been saved. It is characteristic of believers to have hope beyond this life. Now, our hope can be dulled by sin, right? We can get our focus off and we can start to forget about our hope or or, or not think about our hope in Christ. 
But we as believers should be driven by the truths in Scripture. They should be flooding our minds, dwelling richly. When things happen on this earth, we should be thinking about what God has said. We are the only ones with hope, and we are to be ready. And you see, it's the Scriptures that reveal where our hope is, by the way. Don't just try to generate hope by good thoughts about the Lord or whatever. It's not going to happen. In Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Romans 15, 14, for whatever was written in earlier times, that's speaking of scriptures, uh, was written for our instruction that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God's word, when we believe it, gives us hope. You see, and when you came to Jesus Christ, there, you realized the hope that is in the gospel, eternal life, what God has promised. And guess what? Uh, if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. So then, when difficulties come, we need to get into the word of God and renew our hearts and minds. We need to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed. Fix our hope on Christ. And it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, And if you're a true believer, this is when our hope shines forth the most is when we go through difficult situations. It's when it is evident to non-believers. When you're being slandered, when you're being put down, when things are being said about you, and you are trusting the Lord and allowing Him to to, to have you see things rightly, you're setting Him apart as Lord in your heart. You're hoping in what He has promised, not in what you want to happen then we see there comes the possible opportunity to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Do you have hope in you? If you don't, I I question whether you have the Spirit of God in you, to be honest with you, whether you've been saved. Or maybe sin has clouded out your hope. Get back in the Word of God, confess your wrong thinking, and focus on the things above, not the things of earth. So back in our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. The end of verse 14, and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready, being ready in advance, that's what it means, always to what? To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. This is a really interesting language, and I think we can misunderstand this passage by the term defense, and if we ignore the part that says to give an account for the hope that's in you. Some people just take this verse like this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, period. And then they apply it to everything else. That's not what this verse is saying. It's connected to everyone who asks. They ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you. The term defense, as I have mentioned before, is the Greek word apologia. It's an interesting term. It speaks of a verbal defense It speaks of a legal reply to an accusation. Well, it's interesting. It's not an accusation. That's not the point. You're not being accused that you have hope, but you're giving a legal defense why you have hope. We're going to see the Apostle Paul did exactly this in Acts 26. So he's saying within this, that you need to be ready to share. And actually, let's turn to Acts 26 and take a look at what Paul does before King Agrippa. He is ready to give a defense, and he does. And we see an example of this. It doesn't say get ready uh, right when it happens. It says always being ready. Always being ready. That means we need to know why we have hope. We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand what we are hoping in. And we need to be able to share the gospel. This is why I have hope. I have hope because Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. And because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I have hope because of the truth of the gospel. Acts chapter 26, verse 1. We'll read through a portion of this. And Agrippa, that's King Agrippa, said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things that I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know my former manner of life from my youth, from 
which I which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and and in Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now, notice he says, hey, this is the way I used to be. Okay? And now I am standing on trial for what? The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And notice what he says, the promise to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, O King, I am being accused by the Jews. That Jews, um, why, is, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the, to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And just... And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. And not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all their synagogues, in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister, a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul was ready to give a defense. And within that defense, he shared the gospel concerning what Christ had shared with him when he was saved. Always being ready to give a defense. Being ready to give a legal defense for why you have hope. You know, people don't just go into a courtroom unprepared. They prepare their defense. They prepare what they are going to say and they share those things when they are asked. You, you may now share your testimony and they share that. We need to be ready always for when someone asks us why we have hope. That's the question. Why are you not distressed by how everyone's treating you? Why are you acting this way? Why don't you yell back at them? Why do you have hope? Maybe ready. You know why? Because I trust in Jesus Christ. You see, he died for my sins and rose from the dead. I used to be just like everyone here. And God convicted me of my sins and he saved me. And I have a hope that is beyond this world. And he has given me the opportunity to share the good news to you concerning Jesus Christ. We need to think through the biblical reality why we have hope. We need to be always ready, prepared in advance. And I want to ask you, are you prepared in advance? If someone is to ask you, first of all, this passage implies a couple things. First of all, that you are obeying the Lord and they're seeing something different. That, that's implied in this passage. As they see your good behavior and slander you, as we'll see, right? It implies that. That, 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 and then secondly, it implies that you actually have hope. That you actually have hope. So my question would be to you, are you ready to share the hope that is within you? I think we're really, really ready to share everything else. We're ready to complain. We're ready to grumble. We're ready to have problems about everything. I mentioned this in the other Bible studies. What does uh, Colossians say? If anyone has a complaint against anyone, does anyone have a complaint? Forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be ready to share Christ. Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory.
You see, God wants us to be ready for redemptive opportunities because exactly, it's exactly what he did with his son and we're following in his footsteps. He suffered and he responded righteously and God used his obedience to go to the cross and die for our sins. And he will use your obedience if you trust him in the midst of those things to open redemptive doors, as we'll see in a minute, that people might be shamed over their sin and that they might be saved. We have a living hope that will affect our behavior in the midst of difficulties, but it's not going to happen unless we set apart Christ as Lord. Back to our passage. Notice we see, and do not fear their intimidation, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And here's that first thing, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, they're asking you, to give an account for the hope that is in you. And notice there are some qualifiers here. You know, we are really good at obeying God up to a point, and then we fail, right? We may be obeying God at this point, but then there is the potential of failing at this point, yet with gentleness and reverence. Because guess what? These people are probably the people associated with those who have been persecuting you. And we might be tempted not to be gentle and not to be respectful. The term gentle here comes from the Greek word praus. It speaks of meekness, and it almost always is in parallel with humility. Ephesians chapter 4, 2, Colossians 3, 12, Matthew eleven twenty nine, and, and in light of this word, I agree with one lexicon that explains it this way. It's a, it's, a, it's a humble and gentle attitude which is expressed in patient submissiveness to offense. You know, see, when we are offended and treated wrongly, only God can help us be meek and gentle. It's what uh, the Lord declares concerning himself in Matthew eleven twenty twenty eight. Come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, 11.29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, we've got to learn from Why? For I am gentle. He, he, was, he was not antagonistic towards offense. We see that. It's free of malice and a desire for revenge. It's a characteristic of those who abide in Christ. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 10.1, 10, uh, 10, speaks of him speaking by the gentleness or meekness of Christ. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle, same word, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, we're not perfectly that way all the time, but as we trust and abide in Christ, we're going to manifest his character. And we need to confess when we don't. So we are to give this defense, yet with gentleness. The temptation is not to be gentle because they've probably been persecuting you. They've probably been in that group saying all kinds of evil. They've probably been in that It's a temper of spirit. It's the same uh, gentleness we see that women are to have a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. Every one of us are to have a sanctified heart, sanctifying Christ as Lord, ready to give a legal defense, the evidence, specifically biblical evidence, for why we have hope when we're asked. Yet we're to do this with humble, submissive gentleness. We are not to be combative or arguing people into the kingdom. You know, I've never seen a non-believer in the midst of an argument over evolution or creation ever ask why we have hope. I don't think it happens. So notice there's also another quality we're to have. It's reverence, yet with gentleness and reverence. The term reverence means fear, a phobos, and certainly we are to fear God. We see that in our passage. But also we see we are to fear our mass, earthly masters in chapter uh, 2, verse 18. We're to honor all men. I think, although we fear God, I think this is a respect for those who have come to us. I think there's a respect. That God is behind the scenes, working things out. Respect, gentleness and respect. So often we're quick to argue with people or vent with them rather than to be gentle and respectful. Brother and sister, we're to be ready at all times. Prepared in advance. It's a command. Are you prepared? Have you been prepared as a believer? If not, Lord God, I'm sorry. I have neglected your word. I didn't know about it. I want to do it now. It was a sin of omission or I omitted that. I didn't see it. Or maybe I do know about it and I haven't done it. Lord God, I confess. I confess. And I'm thankful you forgive me. I'm so thankful. So then, the first thing, we are to set our minds, our, 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 our Christ as Lord in our hearts, and we are to be ready to give an account. But secondly, there's one more. Notice we are to be keeping a good conscience. 
Again, I'm going to read the passage here, end of verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give it, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Then look at verse 16. And keep a good conscience... So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Remember I told you that term, keep a good conscience, is really a participle. And it's the word holding. Holding on to, having, continually a good conscience. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to hold on to or have a good conscience? It's very important that we understand the Greek word translated conscience here, soon edesis. The term soon means with. The edesis comes from the Greek word edu, which means to know. It's to know with. Well, what does that mean? It speaks of knowing oneself, basically. The conscience, one lexicon writes it this way, the conscience is the eternal judge that witnesses to us and enables us to know with either approving our actions or accusing. Obviously, if we were to hold on to a good conscience, means that we could have a conscience that's not good, right? Let me share some things about the conscience. For the non-believer, one's conscience or awareness of self is defiled, by the way. It's defiled. It's not, it's not, the, the non-believer's conscience is not clear. It is defiled. We're going to see the conscience is like a window. It's whatever it's informed by. And we'll see that. In First, uh, Timothy, First Titus chapter 1, verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They're defiled. Now, although the non-believer may have a sense of right and wrong based on social society or standards or having, a, having heard of God's standards, their consciences are stained by sin. Ours were, every one of ours. Now, God's word reveals that a non-believer can even have their conscience seared. Seared. So, so, so much sin over and over again that there's no longer any, any thought that what they're doing is wrong. It's seared. Now, although... Non-believers' conscience is completely defiled or seared, may be seared. Scripture reveals that without Christ, our consciences were evil. They were evil. The way we saw ourselves, the way we saw our own sphere of good and bad, was evil. You see, if you're not saved, you might feel guilty of your sin. You might, but that element of the, is still corrupted by sin. It's when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ that our hearts are cleaned and we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. By no means is our conscience good to go when we're not saved. It is corrupted. We don't see ourselves rightly. And it was in Christ that it is sprinkled clean. It is cleansed. Hebrews 10:22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean from what? An evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Speaking metaphorically of the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ, we come and actually appeal for a right conscience. Look a little farther in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. He's talking about baptism, not water baptism. He's going to clarify. He's talking about being united with Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to say something about our conscience in that. Hebrews, or 1 Peter 3:21. according to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of flesh, not the water baptism, but it's union with Christ, as we'll see. But hear what he says. But an appeal to God for what? A good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you come to faith, you recognize you are corrupted with sin. You are a sinner in need of salvation. And you are appealing to Him for forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. A cleansed conscience. And it's when we have a cleansed conscience, we can now see ourselves rightly in light of the Word of God. In light of the Word of God. 
God's word shines upon our hearts and we can judge ourselves to whether we are right or wrong. Our conscience bears witness in light of God's word, not on its own, but in light of God's word. And we see in scripture that the spirit of God works in this also with the conscience and faith or other passages. Look at Romans, I'll just read it. Romans 9, 1. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. My conscience bearing witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, Paul says. For believers, we have had our consciences cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ. We now can make the choice to maintain a good conscience, as we will see, or allow our consciences to be defiled. We're going to see the only way we can maintain a good conscience is by confessing sin and being right with God, seeing ourselves rightly. You see, those who are saved are those who confess their sins because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And in light of God's word, we can be clean. Now again, our conscience is not the final authority. God is. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, basically. But as much as our conscience are formed and informed by the word of God and the spirit of God, we can see ourselves rightly. The Apostle Paul says some very interesting statements, and I'm going to read these. Chapter 24 of Acts, I'll read this, verse 16. In view of this, I do my best. This is before Felix. I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience. Wow, that sounds prideful, doesn't it? How can someone be blameless? Well, we can, moment by moment. We do sin, but we can. How do we maintain a blameless conscience? We confess sin when we sin. We acknowledge it, and we confess it. We don't continue on. He shares uh, to Timothy... In 1 Timothy 1.5, But the goal of our instruction is from love, a pure heart, and a good conscience, and sincere faith. We see faith. First, 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God, Paul says, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. After exhorting the body to, to uh, obey their elders, the next verse, the writer of Hebrews says, Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience. We are sure. Desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Hebrews 13, 18. You know, one thing that bothers me is when people say at times, there's no way we can know that we're right or we have a clean conscience. Yes, we can. But it's not up to us. It's up to God's word by his spirit informing our conscience concerning our behavior. Concerning our behavior. And yes, we do need to be praying because we have hidden faults. Psalm 19, quit me of my hidden faults, Lord God, then I'll be blameless. Yes, Lord God, it's, a, it's an attitude of submission to God and his word. And when I fail, when it's revealed to me, oh Lord, I failed, I confess that. Clear conscience. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. This is with knowledge, with the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially towards you, Paul says. A mature believer in Christ, we understand God's word, we are able to have clear consciences. Even a new believer can have a clear conscience. God's word informing them of sin and addressing it, confessing it, and walking rightly. We are to keep a good conscience. We're commanded here. Keeping a good conscience. Back to our passage. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Or literally holding on to a good conscience. How do we do that? Well, for these believers, the way to keep a good conscience would be to trust and obey the Lord. To not revile in return. To utter no threats. To follow in his footsteps. To entrust themselves to the one who judges righteously. To not return evil for evil. But to sanctify Christ as Lord in their heart. To not give in to those things. And when you do, your conscience isn't clean. But when you confess it, it is. It is. Keeping a good conscience. Don't sin. And when you do, confess it. Walk with the Lord. Walk with the Lord. The point is, we should be continually, habitually keeping a good conscience. That means we are confessing immediately when we fail. We're confessing. And notice he says, here's why. It's very important. Middle of verse 16. 
so that in the very thing in which you were slandered. Again, this is the context of this book. Those who revile what? Your good behavior in Christ. You're doing the right thing in Christ and they are reviling you. They're slandering you. They're, they're maligning you. You did what was right. You obeyed the word of God. And that's the result. So that they may be put to shame. God uses our righteous response in the context of hope and submission to Christ to shame people who are sinning. You know what? Shame is a good thing. Shame is a good thing that people might be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Ashamed of their actions that they might repent and believe. Non-believers aren't ashamed, generally speaking, of their actions in relationship to God. They may be ashamed in relationship to man or whatever it might be. That they would be put to shame. You know, what's interesting is later on in 1 Peter, we believers are not going to be ashamed. We're not going to be put to shame. Again, so that in the thing that you were slandered, who rose or reviled your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. They may see your sin, and in context, ask you why you have hope. They may see Christ in you, not understanding it, and ask you, and you have a chance for the gospel. And notice he explains here, verse 17, for it is better... If God should will it so, it's not always, but it does happen, that so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. On the basic level, it's obvious. It's always better to suffer for what's right than what's wrong, right? There's no credit, like we saw in chapter 2, if you suffer and treat it harshly. God's favor is not on you when you suffer for your sin. That's just the way it is. Chapter, chapter 4, same thing. Don't suffer as a murderer, da-da-da, troublesome meddler, whatever it is. There's no credit for that. So in a basic sense, yes, it's always better for that. But I think there's more to this than just that. Because he's explaining for. And he says it is better. The term better, you may have a note in your Bibles, maybe not. It is literally the word good. It is good if God should will it so you suffer for doing what's right. God is doing good. It's a good thing if you suffer for doing what is right. Why in context? People might ask why you have hope. They might be ashamed of their sin. That's a good thing. And that's what we need to think, to think rightly in the context of what's happening to us. It's good. And then the last part of this chapter, we'll see it next week, or willing, is Christ did exactly what God is asking us to do. He is our perfect example. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all. An explanation. Hey, he died for sins. The just, he did the right thing for the unjust. We may suffer for doing what is right in the hands of those who are unjust, but God just might use that to save them. It's good. So next time you're tempted to see your suffering for doing what is right is bad, renew your heart and mind with the word of God. It's good. It's good. Today we've seen what God is doing behind unjust suffering. You see, we're not just his servants or his friends. He hasn't left us in the dark of the good that he is doing. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, being ready to share while you have hope. Keep a good conscience so that people might be shamed and saved. Let's pray. Father, you are so good, and I thank you so much for your word. It is so easy for us to be distracted by the circumstances and situations and people, Lord God. And that is sin. And we confess when we do, Lord God. Help us to obey your word, to set apart your Son as Lord of our hearts, to reign over my thinking, Lord God. I pray for anyone here in whom Christ is not Lord, who is not reigning over the heart through, his, through, your, through your word, by your Spirit that they might see their need of a Savior, their need of true hope, and turn to your Son, Jesus. Even in the midst of this body, as people suffer and those who are not saved around, may they turn and ask, really from the heart, why we have hope. And Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would be setting apart Christ as Lord in our minds, in our hearts. That Christ would be Lord of our thoughts. I pray that we recognize when he is not and we confess that. And I pray that we would obey your word always being ready to give an account 
for the hope, to everyone who asks for the hope that is in us. Yet we would do it like your son, with gentleness and reverence. And Father, may we obey your word and be keeping a good conscience, allowing your word to inform us concerning our behavior and actions that we might see ourselves rightly, confess when need be, and walk rightly before you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your love for us. And thank you for the privilege of being used to share your glorious truth of your son. And it's in his name we pray.